So are you getting tired of asking, so who's preaching this Sunday anyway? <laughs> oh no, not that guy again. I hate it when he preaches here. It's kind of like preaching roulette. You never know, you know. It feels maybe more like Russian roulette some weeks. And I have to tell you, every time when you let the people out with the kids to go drop them off, I get worried. I think some of them aren't coming back. They're going to find coffee, they're going to find donuts, they're going to huddle up, they're going to do whatever they can to avoid having the sermon, because after all, you're letting the kids out because you wouldn't want to do that to children. (laughs) I mean, it's just not fair, really, at their tender young age to make them endure something like that. I mean, we have to as adults, it's part of our penance or something, we're not really sure. But you're looking for a preacher, I understand. You've been looking, that's why I'm here. I'm not him, but you know, you got to have somebody to do this. But you're looking, you're looking for this preacher guy I hear, and you're getting really close. As a matter of fact, I mean, it could be any day now. And for a small fee, I would be happy to let you know who is the candidate. See me afterwards. But you're looking for a preacher. You've been after this a while. Your search committee has been working really hard. I've talked to a few of them, and wow, it's like 50 candidates. They've been listening to sermons online and weeding this thing down and praying over it. It's a ton of work, and it's not always pleasant work, and everybody's wanting to know. So who's the guy? Who's it looking like? You know, these kind of back deal, back room conversations. People are wanting to know. So I got a question for you. All this work you've been putting in, looking for a preacher, all the hope, all the expectation, everything else projected on this guy. Here's my big question. Why? Why do you want a preacher? Why is this important to you? Do you like listening to sermons? Really? Have you thought about how we use the words sermon and preacher in our culture? These are not good words. We say, don't preach at me. Or quit giving me a sermon. No one ever comes home and says, honey, it's been a really hard day at the office. I'm so discouraged. Could you just give me a sermon? I need, I need something to just pick me up, you know? I mean, sermons, sermons are, oh, they're viewed as long, boring, irrelevant, guilt-producing, useless talk, moral diatribes, in-your-face, confrontational, guilt-producing. Isn't that what we, we view as sermons? I mean, and if you look at the, the surveys that have done, evaluating the public confidence in certain professors, preachers are way down there at the bottom with used car salesmen. Sorry to offend the used car salesmen. And it's always been that way. It's not like this happened with Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart in the last 30 years. It, it, it's always been this way. It was this way for Jesus. Preaching is a dangerous profession. It's a difficult enterprise We don't know what to think about these people. And here in Mark 6, Mark gives us three preaching stories. In the first preaching story, Jesus is the preacher. And Jesus goes back to his hometown, little village, to his home church there in Nazareth. And everybody's excited because the the boy who grew up here has gone off and become a celebrity. And now he's come home and everybody's just thrilled. And Jesus and the disciples roll into town. They see the water tower. says, hometown of Jesus. Everybody can't can't wait, can't wait. They pack in the little synagogue there. They're climbing in the windows. They're packed in the door. They're standing in the corners. There's not a spare room. Even the people who never come, they're there on this week. They've been coming in from the countryside. They left the fields untended. They are there. They want to hear Jesus. 
There's not a whole lot else to do, and this is excitement for them. And their first reaction is, wow, it's just amazement. Wow, he really turned out great. Oh, he makes us look good. And they just love him until he starts talking. And then they get mad. They get offended. Where does this man get these things? Who does he think he is? What wisdom has been given to him? I mean, fame is one thing. Putting Nazareth on the map is one thing, but but assuming that you have such authority over us. I mean, who does he think he is? I went to school with him. I sat next to him in math class. We played football together. He wasn't very fast. He wasn't particularly good. I know, he's just a carpenter. I mean, he made, made my cabinets, and that one on the far left, the door never has swung quite right. What makes him think he's such a big shot? Yeah, I mean, he fixed my plow. Just like everybody else is, he's no one special. What gives him the right to tell us how to live? And where are all these acts of power we hear about in other villages? Have you seen anything? Oh, I, you know, Fred had the sniffles before last week, but, you know, and now he's, he's fine. His hay fever's gone. Mary doesn't have a sore tooth anymore. I mean, it's not a whole lot here. It's hard. It's hard to get respect from the people who watched you grow up. It's hard to live with the expectation of fame when people know you. But don't worry, I'm sure some little lady came up to Jesus after synagogue that day and said, don't you worry, Jesus, one of these days you'll make a fine preacher. Everybody in the Gospel of Mark has been amazed in the first five chapters. Amazement everywhere. Jesus goes amazed. Jesus shows up here. They're amazed. Everywhere Jesus goes, they're amazed. Now it's Jesus' turn to be amazed. And what is Jesus amazed at? Their lack of faith. And he quotes a familiar proverb about a prophet in his hometown. And he heals a few people. Nothing, nothing big. And then Mark actually says, Jesus, I didn't write this, Jesus could not do much there. Matthew doesn't even get that bold. Matthew softens it. Jesus didn't do much. But Mark is right in your face. Jesus could not. Does anybody else get nervous over the idea that Jesus couldn't do much here? Hmm. The problem was... They already knew him, so therefore they couldn't see him. Second preaching story, not as entertaining. It's more kind of like a travel instruction. Jesus rounds up his disciples, sends them out on preaching tour. They're supposed to travel all around, create a lot of buzz and excitement, kind of prepare the way, the advanced preparation team. Jesus will come behind all of these places, but you set up what's coming, get people excited, get them talking about what's going on. Travel light. Don't take any extra money. Don't take an extra suitcase. Don't, don't pack a shirt even. You just show up and expect them to pay the way and preach the good news. Don't go with all of your funding in place the way we send missionaries around the world. You just show up and expect them to cover your expenses because you're doing God's work and you preach repentance. And tell people that God's coming. And the most striking part is this message about repentance. Really? You're going to go preach repent and then expect people to pay your bills? That's not easy. 
And Jesus says, some of these towns are going to listen to you. Some people are going to welcome you in, but some are going to completely reject you. They're going to show you the door. They're going to walk you to the boundary of the village. They're going to show you the road out. And when you can't find anybody who will receive you, you can't find anybody who will listen to a message of repentance and kingdom, then when you step out of that village and you move on to the next one, you stop at the border or at the city limit sign and you shake the dust off your clothes, you take your sandals and you shake the dust off Now, that may not mean a lot to you, but that was a common behavior when Jews would travel abroad and they would visit Gentile lands before they would step back into the Holy Land, to the purified land of the people of God. That's the result of the promise given to Abraham, and this is the Holy Land. You don't bring the dust of the Gentiles into the Holy Land. You shake it off because you don't want to contaminate the Holy Land. And for Jesus to say, shake the dust off when you leave that village, that's tantamount to saying that village has cut themselves off from the people of God. They are determining their own fate. They don't belong to God's people. It was a powerful statement of rejection in the face of the refusal to hear the word, repent. And that's what they're told to preach, repent, which happens to be the same message as John the Baptist who preached repentance. Now, this is where Mark interrupts the second story, cuts it apart, and sticks another story in the middle before coming around and finishing story number two. So story number three is embedded in story number two, and this is a common thing that Mark does. Unlike the other gospel writers, Mark does this all the time, like the story of going to Jairus' house, and it's interrupted by the story of the woman who has the hemorrhage, and then we finish the story, or when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he curses the fig tree, and then we don't find out what happens till he goes in and he curses the temple, and then we hear about what happened to the fig tree. And Mark does this all the time throughout his gospel, and what he's trying to say is these two stories are supposed to be interpreted together. The story in the middle explains what's going on in the story on the outside, and that really is important here. And so we have this story of the disciples sent out to preach repentance, and then we have the preeminent preacher of repentance, John the Baptist, and it's supposed to tell us something about the disciples. John the Baptist was the, a preacher of repentance. He foreshadows Jesus. He foreshadows the disciples, and the disciples are out there spreading excitement, and the preaching stirs up all kinds of rumors about Jesus and who Jesus is, and there's all this buzz. And it, matter of fact, it gets to be such a, such a plentiful thing that the, the talk about Jesus rises up even to the palace of King Herod, who was the puppet ruler under Rome. And everybody is speculating who Jesus is and who he might be. But Herod says, I know who he is. He's John the Baptist come back from the dead with new power. Now, is that the most reasonable conclusion to draw at this point? Is that the naturally where your mind goes? You know, it's John the Baptist back from the dead to haunt us all. No, that's not a very reasonable conclusion, but it tells you where Herod's mind is because Herod has a guilty conscience as a cowardly murderer of the preacher of repentance. And he can still see John the Baptist's head coming in on that platter, and he's afraid. And how did John's problem start? He was just preaching. John didn't say what people wanted to hear. He didn't preach a popular message. He preached repentance. 
And every time that Herod was in the audience, he preached from Leviticus 18.16, do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. Really? You're going to bring that text up today? But you see, King Herod had violated the law of Moses by marrying Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and they weren't legally and properly divorced. And Herod's now shacked up with his sister-in-law, and they tried to make it look all legal and proper by getting married, but it really wasn't settled. And John is saying, you are giving a bad example. You are communicating God doesn't take marriage seriously. You are living in an adulterous situation, and he's condemning this ruler and his wife, and they are not happy about it. Particularly Herodias isn't happy about it. And so she starts putting pressure on Herod... And this constant refrain from John, it's not just personally humiliating to this couple, but it's politically destabilizing to Herod, who is an unpopular puppet potentate anyway. And so Herodias works it and gets John caged up in prison, but that's not enough. She wants him dead, and Herod is afraid to kill him because he's a holy man. He just compromises and keeps him locked up. But even when he was in prison, John still had some draw on Herod. And Herod would sneak down there to the prison for little private sermon ceremonies with, with John. Maybe the other prisoners heard, I don't know, but he would go listen to John preach. Now, he wasn't going to change his ways, you understand. He wasn't going to get put away his wife he wasn't going to live right but he liked to go listen to John preach even though it was a condemning message I find that fascinating I mean this guy would make a good church member come to think of it but Herodias is clever she finds a brilliant way to get John taken out of the picture Herod has a birthday coming up He's going to throw himself a big birthday party as usual. All the political and military dignitaries are going to be there. They're going to eat. They're going to drink. They're going to get drunk. And she has noticed that Herod has an eye for her daughter Salome. Well, we'll just have her do a lewd dance. I know Herod. He'll get loaded. He'll get excited. And then he'll start making big promises. And he does. Banquet's over, the dancing is done, Herod's out in front of all his buddies wanting to look big and powerful. Here's this beautiful girl that he's kind of been watching. Tell you what, I give you anything you ask for up to half of my kingdom. What do you want? She doesn't know. Mama, why should I? John the Baptist's head. And the banquet ends with the head of John the Baptist on a beautiful silver platter as the centerpiece for the evening. Good evening, all. Thanks for coming. And only then does Mark finish the story about the preaching tour. The disciples gather around. The apostles gather around Jesus, it says in verse 30, and report to him all they have done and taught. And the story ends. Three preaching stories that serve as a warning to those who would preach the gospel. And you may say, yeah, that must be tough for you guys. No, this is for all of us, you see, because any baptized disciple of Jesus is a commissioned preacher of the gospel, whether you want to believe that or not. You have been commissioned to spread the word. 
And preaching in the New Testament does not refer to the professional orator who stands up in a privately owned church facility to speak to those who've assembled away from the world and preach to the baptized. The preacher in the New Testament is the one who proclaims good news to anyone in the marketplace, in private. It is the declaration of Jesus' message of kingdom and good news and God's work in the world and new life. And this is all of our responsibility. This is all of our task. You are commissioned. Your baptism was your ordination unto preaching. And these three stories of preaching don't make that look real promising all the time, does it? Mark tells John's execution story in a very strategic place in the gospel because he wants us to understand John the Baptist preached He was arrested. He was applauded against by evil people. He was killed by a reluctant but cowardly ruler. He was laid in a tomb. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Guess what's going to happen to Jesus? Guess what's going to happen to the disciples? Guess what's going to happen to anyone who takes this calling seriously? If it happened to him, it could happen to us. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, it's going to bring great joy and celebration and life transformation to some, but other people, other people with vested interest in the way things are, people who don't want to be exposed, people who don't want to hear, they're going to get angry. It can be dangerous. And Mark's church in Rome that read this for the first time, according to tradition, probably said, Amen, Amen. This preaching Jesus is Lord can get you in trouble. Faithful preaching will get some, but it's going to be hated by others. Be forewarned. You know what you're getting yourself into here. But these stories don't just confront us as preachers. More importantly for you today, probably as a congregation anyway, they confront you as listeners. And they beg this question, how do you hear the message of Jesus? Whose ears do you hear with? Who who are you like in this story? Are Are you like the people of Nazareth? Are you like the people of Jesus' hometown? I mean, ask yourself, who is Jesus' hometown crowd today? Would it not be the church? Are we not Nazareth? Are we not those who've grown up with Jesus and we're so familiar with Jesus? Is it possible that we know Jesus so well we can't see him at all? Is Jesus ever astonished at us and our lack of faith because we have domesticated Jesus so much, we have him so clearly defined and pigeonholed that he has no power to amaze us or change us anymore, no power to really transform us because we know what to expect of Jesus. We know what he said. Yes, 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 yada, yada, yada. We know how to give the church answer. We're like that little boy in Bible class. The teacher says, ask the question, what's a small woodland creature that collects nuts and has a big bushy tail? And he says, well, it sounds like a squirrel, but I'll say Jesus. He knows how to give the right answer, but he's not really paying attention. Are we Nazareth? Do we really believe that Jesus has the power to change our lives? Do you come to church expecting to meet God? Do you expect to leave here different than when you came? Do you open up your life and your heart to hear a transforming word? Are you willing to allow your encounter with God in the preaching of the word 
to call everything in your life into question and to call you in a radically different direction? Or is it just the same old, the same old, and you have up the force fields and the word can't get into you because you know already what Jesus is going to say and he's at a safe distance of familiarity right next to you? Are we like that little boy in the storm? The thunder, the lightning scares him to death. He jumps out of bed. He runs and gets in bed with his mom and daddy. And his daddy's not too excited about being woken up. And he says to his son, son, go back and get in your own bed. And the boy says, but I'm afraid. And he said, don't worry. God's in the room there with you. He'll protect you. Now go get in bed. Little boy goes back to his room, crawls under the covers, throws the blankets over his head, sits there and shivers. And the next time there's a big clap of thunder, he just quakes. And then he gets to thinking about what his dad said. And he starts wondering. And he pulls the covers down, he peeks around the room, and then he says, God, if you really are in here, don't move or you'll scare me to death. Is that the church? We don't want God to move because he'll scare us to death. Perhaps we have other ears. Maybe we have the ears of Herodias. Maybe you're here under protest. Maybe your parents made you come. Maybe your spouse made you come, guilted you into it. Maybe you're stuck as a visitor. Maybe you go to church because it's your habit, but inside you hate being here because you hate that preaching that confronts and calls you to change. You don't want to hear it. You don't want to change. You can't hear good news because good news always starts with that word repent, and you can't get past repent to good news and joy and deliverance. You're tired of that preacher always putting his hand in your rice bowl, messing with your life. What does he know? Maybe you're like Barbara Brown Taylor who talked about being on a retreat one time and the, the preacher at the retreat was, was telling them about how Jesus still encounters us in the world today and asked people to go off and spend some time meditation asking the question, who has been Jesus to you? And Barbara Brown Taylor said she went off and she spent some time in deep reflection asking herself this question, who in my life has told me the truth about myself so clearly that I wanted to kill him for it? Or maybe you have the ears of Herod. You like good preaching. You love a good sermon with good stories and illustrations that makes you laugh, it makes you cry, makes you feel like you've encountered God. Maybe you don't always understand it, but it makes you feel close to God. It creates a cathartic experience for you. You come in feeling like you've got the world all over you and you feel kind of purged and you've taken your beating and you can go back out in the world because you've done your penance for the week, but you're not expecting yourself to really change, you know, because you live in the real world and that's not practical and maybe one day and in heaven and for other people, but after all, you have to negotiate the dog-eat-dog world but it does help to go to church and talk about how it ought to be. Hopefully some of you are like the disciples. You hear a word. You leave things behind. You take high risk. You proclaim it to others. You see the kingdom of God breaking into your world. And therefore you are dangerous even in your own church. People aren't sure what to make of you. You're not giving the pat answers. These stories in Mark 6, they're disturbing. 
And they're particularly pertinent to you as a congregation as you get ready to hire a preacher. They beg the question, why do you want a preacher? What do you expect him to do for you? Are you really willing to allow someone to speak the word of God to you in a way that matters? Fred Craddock says there are two kinds of preaching people will not listen to. Bad preaching and good preaching. Obviously bad preaching, it's irrelevant, it's boring, it's not well thought out, it's not well prepared, whatever. But why wouldn't people listen to good preaching? Because we get it. And it calls us to do what is expensive. It calls us to a cross, it calls us to self-denial. It won't leave us alone and let us live as we please And so, Craddock says, the greatest temptation to the preacher is very simply to be intentionally ineffective. To say nothing that really matters, to never challenge anyone or anything powerful, to never risk offending the congregation or the powers that be within the congregation, to let sleeping dogs lie, to make people feel comfortable, to bless what they're doing, to entertain, to pacify, and to keep the numbers up. And an age of show business that we live in with an obsession with entertainment. Have you heard about the awards the entertainment industry gives each other? And we all flock. In a world obsessed with celebrity and entertainment, the preacher is under tremendous pressure to compete to be engaging, to be dynamic. Why, there's so few people these days who have that gift. Most of them are going to have to be put on screens because we can't find enough people who have the ability to preach with that kind of dynamism in the world anymore. So we're going to have to clone ourselves. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm saying it's dangerous. We create the ethos of theater or concert in our worship, and then we are amazed when people act like it was just theater or concert. Now, I am all for entertaining preaching. It beats boring preaching all to pieces. I think it's wonderful. I am not against entertaining worship. I think worship should be entertaining. I think it should grab our attention. I think it should transform us. I think it should draw us in. I think it should send us out energized and excited. But Can we also let it speak the word of God to us? Good preaching is dangerous. And in a world obsessed with entertainment, preachers are rewarded for saying what people like, not what challenges them, not what helps them grow, but what entertains them. And in our very competitive American culture with clear winners and losers, preachers are measured and evaluated by numbers. And that makes it difficult to preach a message that begins with the word repent. I am reminded of a passage from Ezekiel 33. Three little verses, verses 30 through 32, from a very ineffective preacher. Measured by any statistical number, 
where Ezekiel is confronted by the Lord. And the Lord says to him, As for you, son of man, your people are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, saying to each other, Come and hear the message that's come from the Lord. And my people come to you as they usually do, and they sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. This describes the preacher as Bono, the U2 version of worship. Where we have a great cathartic experience and we hear a powerful message and we have this great gathering with all of this energy and then we go back to work and go through our regular lives because it was just a concert and that's the temptation always has been for centuries to view the preacher as an entertainer he has good stories and like Herod we feel purged just by listening but we really aren't going to let it change us And so here you are as a congregation now. For months you've been asking, who's going to preach? Who's going to preach? Who's going to preach? Who's the preacher? Do you know who the preacher's going to be? I hear we're getting close to hiring a preacher. Oh, I can't wait until we get a preacher. You just wait until the preacher comes. Who's going to preach? Who's going to preach? Who's going to preach? And I would suggest to you that that is the wrong question. The right question is, who's going to listen? Because you see, if you are the right listeners, almost any preacher can be God's instrument to bless you. Skilled or unskilled. But if you are not the right kind of listeners, why even Jesus couldn't do much here. Now, from what I've seen in my five or so weeks of being here off and on, I'm hopeful based on what I see. It sounds good. It looks good. But I would issue a caution to you. If the new preacher does his job right, he's going to make you angry. He's going to push you where you don't want to go. He's going to call you to sacrifice things you don't want to give up. He's going to ask you to love people that you want to ignore. He's going to mess with your life. And if he isn't, he's not doing his job. And don't think that the preacher is going to come and be the champion for your personal issues or grievances and fix everything for you. Because I don't care who he is. He may be able to equip you. He can inform you. He can unify you. He can organize you. He can inspire you. But he cannot obey God for you. Only you can do that. So Mark tells us that the gospel is pretty serious business, whether we're doing the preaching or whether we're doing the listening. There's something important happening here, and, and he confronts us. The gospel confronts us with life and death issues. These are core realities. We make fundamental decisions based on this stuff. And when we have ears to hear, the gospel can be truly transforming. It can bring the kingdom of God into view. It can usher the reign of God. It can 
create new worlds with creative words of God. If we can hear. One of my favorite stories comes from William Williman. Taught for years at Duke. Preached in a local church there. He tells of one Sunday afternoon getting a call from one of his church members. Asking, could you come and visit with our daughter Anne? Preacher knew Anne quite well. Grew up in this church. Bright young lady. Just finished college. Had applied for and been accepted into pharmacy school. Was getting ready to start pharmacy school. Came home for a visit. And then announced to her family she was dropping out of pharmacy school. And she was moving off to work with migrants down in the Rio Grande Valley. And they're like, what? Preacher said, well, why is she wanting to do that? The father says, I don't know. I don't know. But would you come talk to her and talk some sense into her? I mean, we spent a lot of money on her education. She has this bright future in front of her. What? And so the preacher meets her the next day on Monday and sits down with her. And he reminds her of all of her hard work and how promising her future is. And how as a pharmacist she could bless so many people. And I know it's hard to think about another degree and all those years of study. But, I mean, you're really preparing for something that matters and all this kind of stuff. And he's just not getting anywhere. And finally, he says, well, Ann, what was it that made you decide to do this anyway? And she said, oh, it was your sermon yesterday. (laughs) My sermon yesterday? What are you talking about? Well, you know how you were talking about how Jesus calls us to live a sacrificial life and go to the cross and not think about ourselves and to give our life away to bless other people in the name of Jesus. And And I got to thinking about what I was doing with my life. I said, I don't want to be a pharmacist because it's going to help people. It's just that I like science and it's a good paying job. And I wanted to go make good money and get a nice comfortable house out in the suburbs and live this kind of selfish life. And I decided I couldn't do that if I took Jesus seriously. And then I began to think about when did I really feel closest to God? When did I really feel most useful to God? And it's when we went on that mission trip. And we were down there in the valley. And we were working with all those migrant kids. And we were teaching them English. and Teaching them to read. And telling them Bible stories. She said, I really felt useful to God then. And so I've decided that's what I'm going to do with my life. I want to make sure those kids have a chance at real life. The preacher sat there quietly for a moment. And he said, now, look, Anne. Um, I was just preaching. 